Scott, every now and again, you offer a gem to the people that I'm not sure that they actually hear. Last week, when you said, well, verifying Beethoven's blackness mean we play him more or we play him less. <laughs> when I tell you that was a word. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying. I just wanted to make sure that people heard that because... <laughs> well, you can tell a lot about a person from that answer, couldn't you? Absolutely. You sure so, could. <laughs> choose wisely. <laughs> well, in, in addition to offering gratitude to you, to offering that provocative gem from last <laughs> week, uh, uh, huge thanks to Schubert Club. Since 1882, Schubert Club has been creating inspiring musical experiences in the Twin Cities. More on them here in a bit. Also, a special thanks of support from Salestina. Salestina is classical music's wingman. By day, they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films. By night, they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be. Also more on Salestina and their upcoming event here shortly. Um, we're here in uh, Women's History Month as this is released, but we're recording at the tail end of Black History Month. So mm -hmm. I always think about um, interesting ways to transition from Black History Month into Women's History Month. In my uh, radio programming days, this would be a perfect Black woman composer week. You know, oh, absolutely. That, that, uh, that, that, that sort of thing. But before we completely left Black History Month, I figured that we needed to make sure that we tipped our hats, so to speak, to some of the black folks in the realm of country. Mm -hmm. So of course, here on Triloquy, we talk about a decolonized approach to classical music. When I think about country music conceptually, how can that not be considered one of the cultural musics, classical musics created in America and share with the world as a, as a unique contribution? Uh, I, I think because of the way that the industry has morphed into a predominantly white industry mm -hmm. across yeah. the board, you know, the, and it, um, I, I think that new people becoming uh, aware of country music would probably just assume that that is an, a, a white only sort of, uh, of uh, arm of the industry, don't you think? Yeah, I, th I think it's one thing to talk about who created right. <laughs> country music and, right. and where it came from, because that in itself can be a conversation for a lot of people. But uh, I, I think highlighting more of the history of it and how you know there is a, a black foundation to it and mm -hmm. and uh, and and participation in it over the decades, it would erase uh, certain barriers, I think, for black people and people of color. Mm -hmm. I've come a long way because any time that slide guitar, you know, happens, I'm thinking, all right, am I safe for? <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, See, if, but, if, but if we could just take away some of those barriers, uh, country music, the country music aesthetic really could rise to the top in a new cultural way sure. you know, that is inclusive of all of us. And I think that that plays into what I was saying about the assumption part. You were conditioned to think the sound of that slide guitar meant that you might be in danger mm -hmm. due to the people <laughs> who are listening, correct? Right, yes. I've got it right. Yes. Okay. But if you knew that it was that it was black guitarists that mm -hmm. started that tradition, I think it would change your perspective. It would have been. It would have been a, a bit different. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just to uh, expound on this musically, uh, we, we selected a few of the historic, some of the classic uh, black country artists to, to highlight. And when I asked you about, okay, who are some black country artists we, we need to you know, just say their names before Black History Month is done? Charlie Pryor was the first name that, that came to your 
uh, c- came to mind. Would you say he's like the the William Grant Still of of country music? <laughs> That's, I hadn't thought of it that way. That's pretty good. Um, he he had some he had some real success, some mm-hmm. some big hits. Yeah, so he successfully navigated um, that predominantly white arm of the industry. Here's a little bit of one that he called "Hope You're Feeling Me Like I'm Feeling You." No one could hold me. No one could control me. But now my future is up to you. Your loving can shape me, make me or break me. Oh, I hope you're feeling me like I'm feeling you. This feeling is crazy. I feel like if Charlie Pride went into a black space, even sang before the church I grew up in or something, it would be a lot of celebration of him. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's talent there. There's there's coloratura, you know, just of a different flavor. Uh, uh, but but that that concept, just the same, very impressive vocals for sure. So if you didn't know better. Could you place that? Would you place that as a white voice or a black voice? I would just assume that it was a white voice. I'm, mm. I'm gonna keep it real, but so kind of yeah. like how we talk in classical music about uh, uh, orchestras starting to program more Joseph Bologna Chevalier de Saint George <laughs> when it sounds exactly like <laughs> what Haydn wrote and what Mozart wrote at the time. Yeah, that that's something. But I don't know. For for me, just if I had been exposed to the black side of it he was know, also, from an earlier age he was also been... in baseball he was a uh, he played for the uh, memphis red sox okay oh wow i didn't know that he was a, he was a pitcher yeah um and red birds i think that's what they call them in memphis the memphis red birds some it was something red yeah but you might you're, you'd know better than i would uh in 2020 he was at the country music awards getting the willie nelson lifetime achievement award caught covid mm, <laughs> mm, mm. and died from the consequences. Mm-hmm. Rest in peace to Charlie Pride. Yeah, rest in power. Well, in addition to Charlie Pride, thanks to our friend Rissy Palmer, one of the names that you know I can uh, say when it comes to black women in country music is Linda Martell. Had you heard of Linda Martell before mm-hmm. Rissy Palmer's appears? Yeah, I, I mm-hmm. hadn't heard about her at all. And she's still around. She just stepped back from the uh, country music sort of uh, uh, environment and ecosystem, of course, due in part to not only uh, being black, but being a black woman in mm-hmm. the space. Goodness gracious, can you imagine some of the yeah. stuff that she had to deal with? I can but only imagine. Incredible um, uh, aesthetics that she created in her music as well. I was, you know, Last week, I was talking about Chicago, uh, not Chicago, San Francisco, and how crazy y'all drive over there and everything. So <laughs> <laughs> I was, I've been listening to a tune of Linda Martell's called San Francisco is a Lonely Town. So here's a little bit of it. Two happy people on a greyhound bus. We came here looking for life for us, but the nightlife is his new life, and the only thing I found is San Francisco is a 
Y'all can't see me, but I'm in here making mm. that ugly church face that I was talking about last week. <laughs> and she I'm knows, nodding. Yeah. She, she knows she's singing, are you not entertained? I don't know if I have that on the soundboard here, but are you not entertained? You can hear the and gospel. She, and, she, and she had to go through everything that she went through all the way to just sitting back because y'all are getting on my last nerve. Let me just <laughs> leave the studio and go home. Mm. You know, And of course, there's much more nuance to the story of, of Linda Martell, but what beautiful singing and again what a uh, incredible example of the foundational nature of black people not only in the creation and evolution of musics until country music was born but you know in decades past really finding incredible success in the in the genre mm-hmm. now it's continued to a degree, you know, there are uh, more and more black country artists that I'm learning about, you know, these days that are that are out and about. Um, but you you brought one to my attention who I uh, hadn't heard of, a man named Charlie Crockett. Right. I, I found out about him only recently, even though he's been touring and recording for a number of years and he's just really starting to get some uh, some national attention. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, he. Actually, the thing that I like about Charlie Crockett is that he actually lived the lyrics. Mm-hmm. He learned music on the street. He uh, busked in New York. He worked on a farm in California. He did not enter a contest. You say he a real rapper. He been he he, he been out here. He lived the, the country life. He did not record an album in a closet, and then you know managed to get it in some executives. Uh, mailbox, you know, um, sort of, sort of the. If anybody knows the name Sturgill Simpson, sort mm-hmm. of a, a oh, yeah. you know, sort of a similar tale yeah. of actually living the lyrics, which I appreciate. The other thing is, is that listening to that Charlie Pride, I'm going, okay, there's an influence that Charlie uh, Crockett definitely had. I can hear some Charlie Pride in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, well, what's what's he, a, what's a tune that you think people should take a listen to to introduce themselves to his aesthetic and what he's bringing to country? Well, yeah, just to just to kind of uh, frame it, there's a song that came out in 1972 called Jamestown Ferry by Tanya Tucker. Okay. And he recorded his own cover of that. And I have a question for you about it when we come back on the other side. She just caught the Jamestown Ferry It's not a hot day, January Like she said it'd be If she ever left me A case of gone was all she carried And she got on the Jamestown Ferry And she said that gone I'm digging it. A case of gone is what she carried. <laughs> he he'd have been he'd have been through it. Listen, but, you know, his uh, we we talk a lot about presentation and the effortlessness that some artists have, mm-hmm. and he's not putting on airs. He's not trying to be something that he's not. He's singing that song as he heard it. Yeah, right. Um. I don't even know how to bring this up. In in articles of, about Charlie, they want to focus on is he black, is he white? And he talks about how he's he grew up that way. He he was too black to be white and too white to be black. Mm-hmm. 
and, and finding that friction from all sides. So all these articles want to point out he's black, Cajun, Creole, Jewish, right? And that's how that informs his style and mm-hmm. all of this. And, and I start wondering, okay, so then at, it, it's obviously 0% is the amount of blackness you can have to, to not have it questioned. Am I wrong? You're, you're bringing up a very provocative thing. So for people who don't know Charlie Crocker like I didn't, he does present as white in certain aesthetics, cer- certainly to, to my eye. Mm-hmm. Of course, when you read more about him or you know, maybe if you just spend a little bit more time listening to his approach or, or, or however you, know, you, you, you do that, you do kind of begin to see that he does look like and is a person of color. Um, I think what you're getting at is in the same way, in a similar, not the same way, in a similar way that Linda Martell and Charlie Pride had to go through something. Mm-hmm. This black man who in many cases presents as white still gets it because even the slightest proximity to blackness and and, and the black identity you're going to go through that marginalization one way or another. Right. He, he's, it, it certainly <laughs> is a, a problematic but really uh, honest way of identifying why he is not white. Because mm. a white person would not go through that. And no matter how he presents in certain spaces, you know, we can talk about colorism and all of that stuff. It's enough for him to have to deal with it in the country music realm. He, talk, he takes that whole thing one step further the you know people people aren't used to seeing someone like me doing this music mm-hmm. he says i am not the sort of person that they are used to or want to mm. perform this mm-hmm. music mm-hmm. so that adds a, a layer of realism don't you think because uh i, I know plenty of of people who have played a, or, or uh, know of plenty of white artists who get to uh come up and play at the Grand Old Opry and realize all those dreams that did not have yep. to step through that minefield. Basically, the the idea is, you know, especially when he talks about remaining himself and not mm-hmm. falling into something that may be more commercially whatever. Yeah, they tried to get him to steer that way. It makes me think about so-called classical music, how on the surface, we want diverse spaces, we want diverse voices, diverse orchestras, and all of those things. But we want that diversity to be assimilated into the same old thing. Yeah. Let's let's get an orchestra that's totally diverse playing the repertoire that we've been playing for 200 years, <laughs> you know. Let's 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 fill these uh audiences with uh, uh uh people who have never been to the orchestra before, but let's require that they sit down and shut up and only clap when they're supposed to mm-hmm. to um to to dress a certain way and to sit down, you know, in this uncomfortable seat for X, Y, and Z without getting out their phone. And so they're <laughs> and <laughs> you know, we're, we're 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 not trying to turn the the concert hall into just a completely lawless place. Or maybe we are. Maybe maybe that's okay as well. But I think my point is when we uh Think about the diversity that we're um, striving for in orchestral spaces. There's so many examples that we can pull from other classical musics like country to identify that that being oneself, that that uh, that challenge of just breaking through as a person of color, as a black person in a white dominated field. Mm-hmm. You know, is is going to be something that 
uh, is going to take some work and is going to take us listening and really understanding these stories and, you know, doing something about it, not just letting it be. I thought it was really interesting that he found classic country like Charlie Pride in that era Mm -hmm. by researching classic hip hop because he was trying to find out who the samples were or who the, you know, who the people who originated, you know, probably like the Amen break, Mm -hmm. the Amen drum break. Yeah. And that's when he started looking at, okay, well, what music was being created around that? And that's where he started to find the the country hits of the 70s. Yeah. You know, that, that sort of sound with that guitar that you feel in danger sure. with. <laughs> well, at the end of the day, Black people, Black communities created American culture, created American music. We don't have to celebrate that as a means of uh, solidifying separations or, or, or building walls. I think once we utilize our anti-racist practices, our most equitable practices, and decolonize the arts, we'll be able to have these conversations and celebrate this music and its history as all of ours. You know, The mm. point is for us to see each other all as equals. And I think if we can really approach that decolonist way of even use of the phrase classical music, uh, extending it to include more classic American aesthetics like country, you know, that's our opportunity to uh, understand the blackness that exists there, how mm. we can build unity and and uh, pride and uh, and all of those things and just have a better ecosystem. Good thing there's a podcast that is about that, right? What's that's name? <laughs> it's called Triloquy. And this is Triloquy back in the studio after a couple of different weeks. Glad to glad to be back here. Yeah, yeah, that was rough last week. Yeah, but how's about how are you feeling now? Well, my fever broke the next day, so <laughs> I had to I had to wait in breathless anticipation of what I actually said during the recording session. So I was relieved that it wasn't. That, that nothing, you know, beyond the which direction you're going with Beethoven. Sure. I'm glad sure. it didn't get any further than that. <laughs> well, thank you all for tuning in to returning listeners. We couldn't do this without you. Thank you for your continued support week after week. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the phrase and the concept of classical music and expands it to acknowledge more of the classical musics here in America and around the world, all to the ultimate goal of decolonizing the phrase classical music. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to check out past opuses, and to contribute, visit T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. In addition to your support, support for Triloquy comes from Schubert Club, presenting on uh, February 23rd through March 2nd, uh, a virtual concert spotlight on J.D. Steele, a member of the musical Steele's family. J.D. Steele is a composer, singer, arranger, producer, voice teacher, choir director, and filmmaker. You can hear him and his uh, crew of musicians uh, in a performance recorded on January 26th uh, online at Schubert.org. You can buy your tickets there. Hope y'all will go and check that out. And then once again, thanks and shout out to Salastina presenting on March 24th and 20th. 25th, their resident artist showcase featuring Meredith and Yoshi. You can check that out on uh, March 24th in person and March 25th in person and online. Tickets and more information at Salastina. 
org. We have Murray Horowitz and Karen Chilton in the third movement today uh, to talk a little bit about Hazel Scott getting Women's History mm. Month kicked off with uh, some remembrances and celebration of the legendary Hazel Scott. I have some video game music to present in the second uh, movement. You're going to give us some dance music. You, you got know? that right. Uh, we're going to attack capitalism a little bit in the uh, final movement as we as we need to more and more. <laughs> but for now, we're going to jump into movement one. We're getting this first movement started off in the city of Pittsburgh. Have you ever been to Pittsburgh in person? I have. What do you think about Pittsburgh? I had a great time in Pittsburgh. It very, seemed, very positive. seems like a very metallic city just from what I've seen on TV and the internet. I've never been there. Yeah, you can you can drive by all the the rusted out hulls of the of the steel mills, the uh, you know, the where they where they built America, where they got the ingredients to build America. Yep. Yep. And, you know, there are still people there who think that those those are going to fire back up and start, you know, producing steel again. Yeah. The, the, the buildings are charred with it, you know, from from the, the smoke coming off the mills. Men would have to pack a, 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 a new dress shirt to change into at noon because <laughs> there was so much pollution in the air. So and, and all of the history and present of that grit and grime and hard work. You have arts institutions that are investing time and energy into new music. You do have wow, that. wow. Give us a little bit more. We're we're uh, checking out the Pittsburgh Post Gazette. That's right. One of the uh, articles that I came across this week has the title. Uh, I want to give this a natural, by the way. Thank you. Where does new quote classical music come from? A Pittsburgh orchestra premieres music inspired by the loss of a parent. And mm. the reason why this stuck out, can you guess why I thought this would be interesting after our podcast last week? Yeah, last week you were uh, we <laughs> were critiquing the idea that audiences don't go to the concert hall to hear about uh, a composer's experience or opinion. We no. just want this neutral aesthetic of orchestral sounds coming at us, you know, and here we are. We have an orchestra asking for it, commissioning a composer to do exactly that. That's right. At the top levels, symphony orchestra and opera companies around the country commission composers to write new mu new music for large-scale forces. Sometimes several such organizations will band together to commission a single work to share those costs. So for someone to write for a whole orchestra, let's say 20 minutes, mm -hmm. that's going to be a a nice chunk of change, correct? Oh, yeah. That'll be a good as payday. As it should be, yeah. Right. Okay, so I can appreciate that. And I wanted to find, I wanted to get your opinion on how a person gets into that loop. So somebody has a great catalog of, you know, what do we say, test pieces, you know, just things they've just written yeah. that are fantastic. How do they get the attention of those who have the purse strings, control the purse strings to commission a piece of that size. What a serendipitous question, because in my role at the American Composers Orchestra, it is literally my job to address that very issue. So mm. the answer is, and, and this is what I tell the, uh, the partner orchestras or anyone who's interested in the programs that I run, there is no front door to orchestras for composers. First of all, we see, and we don't have to beat the dead horse, but the the vast majority of what the orchestras are putting out anyway 
are the historical or at the very least dead composers. So with that being what most of the orchestras uh, center, there's all only a, a small sliver of time and, and uh, resources that go to living composers. And, you know, most of the folks on that list are the names that we all know. And of mm-hmm. course, no fault to them, but it, there's this ecosystem of, okay, this orchestra uh, performed such and such. So that means we can too. They, they must be safe enough. And all of a sudden we know those names. So for the, the, for the composer, like you say, who just has that catalog, there's really no way uh well there you know mar- marginal examples of the direct connections but you know that's why you have a lot of the service organizations that's why you mm-hmm. have the specific grants and the uh different uh, initiatives to really get a few of them in there i think understanding that ecosystem makes this all the more laudable for the Pittsburgh Symphony to just do, or the chamber uh, orchestra in this case, sure. to just do the work of commissioning someone. Right. It acknowledges uh, that these are monolithic institutions, mm-hmm. that it's 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 hard to get a foot in the door or a leg up, whatever um, cliche you want to use. But it says that some on some of these organizations are making commissioning new music a part of their very missions. So let's flip the coin on that. Mm-hmm. How does a an organization that has some money, let's say they let's say they want to help someone get that attention, yeah, get that foothold. How do they find the person <laughs> that you know that isn't let's say that isn't an Erilyn Wallen or a right. Terrence Blanchard right. or something like that? Right. I mean, like I said, I, I can't help. I, I don't want this to be a commercial for for ACO. And but, I did not plan but this. That, yeah, I, I did not plan yeah, this. Yeah, but 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 that really is the answer. Service organizations like ours, you know, to uh, to reach out to us for us to reach out to them and to create the programs that you mm-hmm. know give them a leg up of course the the behind the scenes are you know the uh the the calls for scores you know the the uh going through the spreadsheets the you know heartbreaking work of having to say no to 97% of the people who submit something because yeah. at the end of the day there only are so many uh resources so you know that I really think that that is the way. But if we get more orchestras dedicated to to new music and and putting some of the historical composers on the side, I think you know those those resources are uh, more present than orchestras may may think or may understand. You know, you're you you have people in your offices on your staff that can be on the ground, that can be dialoguing with local artists and having that work turning into resources for local artists and performances of their music. And I'd like to shout out Dr. Louise Toppin, uh, who, she, she makes a great point. If you're going to commission someone like this, then let them do their work mm-hmm. after you give them the money. Yeah. Let them do. So Dr. Louise Toppin says that they they all that is needed is the opportunity, especially to tell uh, uh, the story of a person of color from a positive perspective, from an mm-hmm. uplifting perspective. Like in, in this instance, the Chamber Orchestra of Pittsburgh gave a composer free reign. They said, anything is on the table. Literally, what do you want to write about? The result is a 22-minute, three-movement work about her father's death in 2020 after a battle with liver cancer. That's how my mom died. So I would buy, I would buy a ticket to that 
to to hear how she would interpret that. That would be fantastic. The music is meant to chronicle the event and its aftermath in a relatable way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love the fact that they just said, look, we're going to give you the money to do your work. And with that freedom, imagine the gold that she could turn around and hand back. What I really appreciate about it is that it's not just the, and this is no shade to anybody or anything. <laughs> I appreciate that this isn't just some quick concert opener where uh, the the audience gets to, you know, hear the the new music project. And now that that's out of the way, we get to the rest of the the so-called real music while we're here. The piece that uh, was was commissioned is the main thing you know we're we're here to hear Alyssa Wong's piece mm-hmm. it's not just the the thing that's shoved over to the side and i think when we talk about commissioning new works we have to consider where on the program how long of a piece that they get to to write i, I think uh, again a really great example here of how to do it at least on some level well most of the article focused on the new commission and i loved how they gave sort of a and the rest mm-hmm. sort of sum up in the last line is also in the program, Malcolm Arnold's Sinfonietta Number no. One and Haydn's Symphony Number no. Forty Four. See, and they said, and the rest because they didn't want us to see that y'all are putting Haydn a Haydn symphony. Of <laughs> well, all the more, the one called the one that somebody called Morning. I mean, I I, I get the connection and you know the the programmatic aspect, but mm-hmm. come on, come on, you could at least do something. <laughs> okay, I mean, just give us Beethoven if you if you're gonna give us a Haydn symphony. What would you What would you put on if you're if you're trying to if you're trying to um, give a really wide slice. If I was going to reprogram the symphony, I would, uh, this, uh, concert, I would make it a little shorter by taking out the heightened symphony and instead opening, let's say with, uh, the Brahms tragic overture. Hmm. So a piece like that, it fits very well, uh, canonically. If, if people just need to hear that aesthetic, here we go. It's the concert opener. I would, uh, uh, put Alyssa Wong's concerto right in the middle of, of the show as the mainstay. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, if there's going to be an intermission, intermission, and let them Malcolm Arnold piece, close it out. That's how I would reframe it, if you're asking me. Um, I think it's a great example. Like the article points out, there are uh, orchestras and symphonies that are making commissioning part of their mission now. So my suggestion is give them the money and let them do. Let them tell their story as they want to tell it through the music and you will get gold. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, before we leave this, a quick shout out to uh, Carlos Simon, who has yeah. uh, a performance by yeah. the Pittsburgh Symphony across the across town. So you have the Pittsburgh Chamber Orchestra and the Pittsburgh Symphony, both investing time and energy and resources into new music. So shout out to them. Glad to glad to hear it. Uh, we'll transition uh, out of this accidental uh, with a piece by Alyssa Wong. Looking forward to hearing that concerto uh, if, it, if, if it gets recorded and, and spread around. But for now, we have a, a work of hers called Volt to get us uh, to the next accidental. Thank you. 
That recording comes from the uh, Palo Alto Philharmonic uh, YouTube page. Something that I was thinking about there, Scott, was as creative and um, just interesting that the music that these composers today create with few weapons, sure. so to speak, just a few instruments. Yeah. To think about the opportunity for them to write for a full orchestra, you know, uh, we didn't highlight it in uh, the that article, but uh, she talked about in the interview how uh, the timpani beating is going to, you know, be a motif throughout for that the beating heart of her, yeah. her father, you know. So just having those expanded uh, resources, that expanded palette gives us all an opportunity to experience what it's possible and what and what people are creating out here it's it's incredible for me to yeah, think it about it, yeah. it keeps me waking up early mornings and coming up and, and getting on on zoom and doing all this stuff for <laughs> for employment <laughs> you're, you're not done with the four-day work week yet that hasn't that hasn't shifted we, huh? we we need to figure it out but <laughs> <laughs> but but it is that that that's the other part of the pitch that i always put out there a part of my love for new music is thinking about the human beings that yeah. you know i, I get to Support, you know, I just love sending out emails to people about, you know, congratulations, you've been, you know, selected for such and such. I can just, I can feel that positive energy, and we, yeah. we, we, we got to do more of it if, if we have the opportunity to. And these orchestras have the opportunity, yeah, you know, just as we're seeing over in Pittsburgh. All right, for uh, for our second accidental this week, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna stick with you. I'm gonna give this one a natural. I'm reading from uh, Idea Stream Public Media. Uh, the headline here is Meet the Cleveland Orchestra's First Director of Diversity and Inclusion. You said I asked, I've asked you this question before on Triloquy. I didn't remember, but just generally speaking, what do you think about all of these organizations that are hiring, you know, diversity directors or VP of DEI, those sorts of job titles? Uh, it depends on one thing. Do they have power or do they have a title? Um, are they just there for decoration? <laughs> and that's yeah. not commentary on, on it's not. The, uh, the the person uh, selected in, in Cleveland. Not at all. That's just a conversation that we need to have. We need to stop playing about it. I'll read a little bit of it here. It says, the Cleveland Orchestra is following the leads of ensembles in Cincinnati, Atlanta, Minneapolis, and other major cities in hiring a director of diversity and inclusion. Joanna Brown is the first tapped for the role at Severance. She, uh, that's the uh, concert hall over there. She's a lifelong mm -hmm. uh, Clevelander, a graduate of Glenville High School, and Cleveland State University and early in her career was even a former IdeaStream employee. Brown was most recently in a similar leadership position at the Greater Cleveland Partnership before taking on this historic role. How important do you think it is to have locals in positions like these? I think that's pretty significant. I do. I do. I think it really helps uh, for you to adequately serve <laughs> that community if you come from it. Yeah, that's a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. Um what might this be on this person's job description? Any DEI officer? What I would. What does that mean? I would. I would say leading um, internal dialogues and trainings and, and okay. fa facilitating all those sorts of things. Looking at uh, existing uh, programs and initiatives and determining areas in which it could be more inclusive. So, for example, if. Uh, a decision is made or it's identified that program notes should be written in uh, English and Spanish. I, I, I would put something like that in her purview in, in her department to just identify areas in which the organization can continue to expand and be more equitable and more inclusive. Probably advocate for any people of color on staff, that sort of thing. Hopefully. 
hopefully. <laughs> I'm just trying to get yeah, yeah. I'm just trying yeah. to get an idea what the what the the parameters might be because they're probably going to be different everywhere. And so I'm thinking about you know uh, someone like that working with people of color who might be part of an orchestra uh, all the way over to those that are keeping the house running when the orchestra when the when the concerts are happening. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I really appreciate what uh, the the interviewer. Uh, ask you know it's a, a transcript of an interview I'll have the uh, link in the description for y'all to check out but they talk about a little bit of the job and uh, her her background as a musician and you know why why she would be interested in a role like this but it gets to a question that I I definitely would have asked uh, the interviewer here uh, says the music which the orchestra plays especially the basic repertoire I love use of the word basic there uh, which hasn't <laughs> been so diverse for the past few centuries I know you won't be choosing the selections yourself, but is that going to be more diverse in the future? Maybe reflect on the audience more closely. Mm -hmm. So uh, Joanna Brown's response is the orchestra has already been very intentional about trying to diversify the repertoire. The composer, the number of solo artists, we have our composer in residence, Allison Loggins Hole. We've commissioned a piece by Wynton Marsalis uh, as an example, and she goes on about some of the other uh, sorts of initiatives they've, they've taken. All right. So this is what we're going to do. I'm not making any judgments. I'm not saying anything about what's being listed here as far as, you know, the efforts that are being made. All I want to do is to go to the Cleveland Orchestra website and see what's uh -oh. what, what we got. Okay. <laughs> so are you going to pull the receipts? So we're going into March. We have a concert that's billed pictures at an exhibition on the concert program is a symphony by Louise Farrakh, a very important uh, woman composer who isn't uh, often uh, noted uh, mm -hmm. in, in classical spaces. We have uh, Ravel's Piano Concerto, and we have uh, Ravel's arrangement of uh, Mazursky's pictures at an exhibition. Okay, that's fine. It's just a, a one-off. There, there are no black composers on that concert, but I'm, I'm sure that uh, if I if I go and see what's going on the following week, we'll, we'll see some of that. Oh, okay, so actually it's a, a concert built, Mozart's Requiem, where the audiences will hear Strauss's Metamorphosis and uh, Mozart's Requiem. Look, it's great music. Um, it doesn't really shine a light on uh, efforts to diversify the programming. I even uh, went back a little earlier today to see what they had for maybe the, the last couple of weeks of Black History Month. And even on those concerts, at least the ones that are listed here on the website, there were not examples of these efforts to diversify programming. So I hope Joanna Brown understands that. If there's something happening that I can't see, that's great, but I can't see it. So what do you want me to say? I'm looking at what concerts I would have the opportunity to go to, and I don't see representations of the populations in Cleveland. I don't see anything that speaks to me. I see a, a, a perpetuation of the status quo. Question, just as a means to perhaps throw a little bail, are we able to confirm whether or not any of the soloists or conductors are people of color? That doesn't matter to me, because if we're talking, no, if but we're, you, you if do we're talking about you diversifying do. programming, if that is the 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 accusa if, if that's the thing that's being said, we're working to diversify programming. That's what I'm talking about. But you do understand that there are organizations that will try to count that. Well, then they need to understand that they're not having a conversation about programming. They're having a conversation about personnel. And those are very different things. You heard? While we're here, while, I, while I'm in this energetic <laughs> space in my mind right now, um, 
Uh, Joanna Brown goes on to say, you definitely began to see people that are very diverse from not only a racial background, but also from different ethnicities and countries. So it's the intentionality we're continuing to build on. I expect the music director and our artistic team will continue to amplify that as they move forward. So I will acknowledge that there may again be personnel things that are happening. I think it's huge that Allison Loggins Hole uh, has an opportunity to be commissioned by the, the Cleveland Orchestra, arguably the best orchestra in the country that's the talk in the biz anyway um but we 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 have people out here like me that are always just going to go to the website and check out the programming and if there isn't something being platformed to the front that i can't use to you know identify ways in which you're helping to make me feel more like i belong in that space i just you know i i, I can't do it I, I, and I, and i i think it's a shame that we platform people of color in these positions and have these interviews when it's so easy for me to poke a hole through whatever's being said here so i just checked the date and this article came out at the end of january so joanna is a is has recently taken on this role yeah, correct yeah. okay so that season was probably already in place. A lot of those concerts were probably already in place. So really, shouldn't we be looking to seasons ahead for the concrete evidence of, of those sorts of changes? The quote here is the orchestra has already been has very already. intentional about trying to okay. diversify the repertoire. Okay. You know, we can get defensive. Well, we've already been doing, we've been, you know, the organization is X, Y, and Z. Show me, show me. And then we can continue the conversation. I, I missed that part. And I just wanted to make sure that we were checking all the dust in all the corners. <laughs> but but you know what? We're rooting for Joanna Brown. I'm excited oh, that yeah. there is someone local there who can actually speak to mm -hmm. the uh, the communities from the perspective of someone who has been on the ground, who just knows the culture and and all of that. You know, celebrating her, definitely uh, rooting her on, and hopefully, you know, in a in a few months or maybe even a whole season. What I'm saying now about the programming will just sound ridiculous. It'll be so different. No one will be able to believe that there were multiple concerts in a row with only white composers. Wow. Mm. Anyway, we'll uh, transition out of this first movement and into the second movement with a piece of music by Allison Loggins Hole. Again, I'm, I'm really excited to uh, discover what she creates in conjunction with the Cleveland Orchestra. Uh, but over the weekend, I was listening to a tune of hers called Hammers is actually a work where she collaborates with sandbox percussion, a really cool uh, percussion and, and, and flute uh, collab. So uh, here's a little bit of it to get us to the uh, second movement. Hammers by Allison Loggins Hull. Thank you. 
What do you think of that aesthetic? <laughs> I like it. Yeah, it's fun. It's 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 quirky in a cool way. Yeah, <laughs> de- it de- definitely for like a. I don't know. I would I would put that on morning drive radio. It's enough to wake you up and get your mind kind of moving. But like you know, you don't have a horn section screaming at you first thing in the morning. So it's a good. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a good balance of you know the the active, but you know in in that chamber context. Shout out to mm. Allison Loggins' whole love everything uh, that you do. Uh, but we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are going to um, talk a little bit uh, about some music that we've spent some time with this week. I'm going to get us started this week in the second movement. I want to give a shout out to Keith Brown at Interlock and Public Radio. He has a, a podcast and a project called Gameplay that uh, highlights just the importance of video game music and how it is equally valid as classical music. We're trying to schedule a uh, a collaboration, have him on Triloquy. It'll probably be early uh, next season, sometime cool. in, in June or July. But um, but I'm, I'm bringing him up because he brought something uh, to my uh, attention and a composer to my attention uh, who I wouldn't have heard about otherwise. So um, he shared with me that at the most recent Grammys, at the 2023 Grammys, uh, for the first time, they had uh, a video game music category of its own, best score for video games and other interactive media. So with that bit of history, there was one woman composer nominated, and she actually won. Her name is Stephanie Oconomo. Uh, so a bit of women's history in the in the making there, not only with uh, the creation of that category, but a woman winning it, which is uh, really cool. Uh, she won it for uh, music from the soundtrack of a video game called Assassin's Creed. I don't. It, it's a pretty yeah. popular uh, franchise. I haven't uh, played it in, in many years, but this particular um, iteration of the game is subtitled Dawn of Ragnarok. So it has, you know, some of that uh, uh, Nordic aesthetic and uh, mixed in with the contemporary classical yeah. feel. I've been listening to it. It's, it's not exactly what I would um, automatically think of when I would think of video game music, but it definitely creates an aesthetic that, um, you know, won her a Grammy and uh, adds to the uh, aesthetic of video game. Here's a little bit of it. picture something happening in slow motion or something very very dramatic is that something you, is that a game you played not not this iteration uh-huh. a, a years ago assassin's creed so but, is yeah. that is that a uh, uh an in-game language that they use there it i don't know if it's an in-game language if it's actually some ancient nordic something right. but it's i i definitely think it it paints a very specific picture of a very specific part of the world in, yeah. a, in a really interesting way and again shout out to her for uh making history she has all sorts of stuff in her in her catalog but i think it's exciting to think about uh the diversity uh even gender diversity 
that exists specifically inside of video game music and now among video mm. game music Grammy winners. Mm. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'll have a, a link to that in the uh, description. If you are an Assassin's Creed fan, I mean, let me know what you think about it. I don't, it's like I said, it's been so long since I've been in front of, of that uh, franchise. Maybe the trajectory of the music has been interesting. Maybe each one is very, very different. I don't mm. know. I want to hear. But me anyway, either. yeah, shout out to uh, uh, Stephanie Oconomo. All right. Uh, what you got for us in this second movement this week? Well, since I was bathing in the sound of 70s country with Charlie Crockett and all of the in, uh, influences from that era that you can find in his music, I started thinking about summer road trips. And I might actually get one in this summer. Um, and I'm thinking about the music that I used to listen to, and my job was to keep the radio in tune. Riding and, around as a kid with and, your family. Right. And every once in a while, I would catch the, uh, you know, the top 40 station, uh, or what then would have been the closest to pop. And my brothers hated disco. Mm -hmm. They absolutely hated disco. But there was one track that every time it came on, I was just scooting around on that seat. It's called uh, <clears throat> I I love the 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 fact that it was one of the first songs that I could sing on, along with all the way through. Mm -hmm. Knock on wood by Amy Stewart. Just just hit it and feel it. to say the composition was a part of my uh, music education in, in high school. Uh, so. I, that, that was one of the stand tunes that we would play in the band. Oh, okay. So, you know, okay. I, I, but, but I didn't, I guess, I, I'm really trying to remember back. Yeah, I don't, I would not have told you this is a, a song written or at least made famous by a black woman. I couldn't have told you Amy Stewart, but I definitely <laughs> always knew the tune, Knock On Wood. Oh, yeah. So many people have covered it, too. But can you imagine a 10-year-old me in the back seat, <laughs> like singing and hitting the notes? And then, then my voice broke and <laughs> at around 13 and all that went to hell. So, so you would put that tune in the in the disco category. I would. But I love the baseline and the yeah. ba and it gets more it gets more rapid as the song goes on. It it's it's I don't know. I think it's one of the fun pieces of music that, you know, wasn't in Donna Summer's shadow. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> she broke through. Yeah. Well, you know, go get your women's history. Go check out some more Amy Stewart. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we're uh, getting into the third movement this week. I'm uh, very uh, grateful to actually have two guests in this week's third uh, movement. I'm joined by Karen Chilton. She's a, a New York City-based writer and actor, a native of Chicago, um, has uh, written and, and created so many incredible things in, uh, in the ecosystem. Uh, and she's joined by Murray Horowitz, uh, who's an American playwright. He's a lyricist. Um, 
uh, noted NPR broadcaster and an arts administrator. So together, they were um, uh, this past uh, this past season the artists in residence at the Washington Performing Arts, and they decided to put together um, a, a program and a dialogue and, um, and and everything in between performances that honor the late great Hazel Scott. Do you, do you know the name Hazel Scott? I know the name, but I don't know why. Yeah, she's a a, a legendary uh, black. Uh, musician. She uh, excelled in jazz. She excelled in classical. Uh, she was a, a singer uh, and an activist. Mm. And all of those aspects of Hazel Scott, uh, Karen Chilton and Murray Horowitz uh, have collaborated to uh, raise awareness about uh, everything that she did and why she uh, is a pivotal figure mm. in the field of American music, even American classical music uh, and, and beyond. Uh, so to get us into the conversation, I'm going to play a, a short clip of what I would say is uh, uh, Hazel Scott's most legendary bit of media. Uh, there's a video where she plays two pianos, two grand pianos at the same time, and does it quite well. So uh, here's a little bit of that opening to get us into my conversation with Murray Horowitz and Karen Chilton. I grew up in Chicago. Um, I'm from the South side of Chicago. So when I came to New York in the nineties, I only knew two things. I want to work in the theater as an actor and a playwright. That's it. I want to be in the theater and that's where it all started. But you're right that when you start branching off, people start saying, well, are you just doing this now? Or are you doing that? And mm -hmm. that was real. I mean, now everybody has a hyphen, you know, but you know, everybody's hyphenated, but, Back then, it was, you know, if I did too much writing, it was, well, are you still acting? I'm like, I'm doing all of this because to me, those those gifts, this this thing that I have, they're all extensions of each other. So mm -hmm. if I have an idea about a story, I may say, oh, this would be really good using the medium of theater or or maybe this would be a film or maybe this should be a poem or, you know, so I think but I think of all of it as writing. And then the performance part of it, well, I'm performing the writing. So all, both of those, those two things are extensions of each other. But bringing it to Hazel Scott, I think she sort of, um, you know, she was mixing mediums as well. Yeah. And, you know, just and did it, you know, courageously, you know, didn't care about being categorized necessarily. Her mother was the one that said, you know, you're going to get in trouble jazz and the classics. You need to play the jazz straight and play the classics straight, or you won't be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. She didn't, she didn't listen because literally I think it was a performance thing. She was just having too much fun. So those silos do, you know, do exist. But I think that as Hazel did, you can have a little bit more fun if you branch out and you, you sort of spread your wings and, and, and find other ways of expression. Murray, do you find that folks are still having fun in the field as Karen is speaking to? It's so easy to think of it as a job and a and a profession, but is is the fun still there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you, something's if you're not having fun, something's wrong. I mean, there are a lot <laughs> of artists who don't give you 
the the vibe that they're actually having fun but believe me they are no matter how uh um serious their art is um i i'm i'm trying to remember uh um Oh, golly, you'll be my age one day and you won't remember anybody's name. But he's a wonderful, wonderful classical pianist whom we present, uh, Andre Schiff, Sir Andre Schiff, we presented oh, yeah. at Washington Performing Arts uh, virtually a couple of years ago. And he did this wonderful video introduction to what he was going to play. And he played this really tiny Bach piece. It was like two minutes long. It was like some bagatelle or something. And he said, it, he said, I, I play and he played a Beethoven sonata, which he's famous for. And he said, I, I, I play this music because uh, I only play the best music now because life is too short. <laughs> and it was clear that this guy who's playing, quote, classical and, you know, European art music in the, at the highest level was having a time of his life playing this little Bach piece, you know. So, um, and where Hazel was really ahead of her time, I think. And and I'm I'm going to co-sign everything that 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 Karen said because it, it was one of the things that we have in common. If you had the Venn diagram of Karen Chilton and Murray Horwitz over, there'd be a lot of overlap. <laughs> and we it, it's exactly what she said. You think of it all as as writing. Um, although she grew up in the benighted area of Chicago, Illinois, I grew up in a real metropolitan area of Dayton, Ohio, and so we ah! had a lot. <laughs> But it was a very eclectic upbringing. You heard everything. And I, I remember more than 50 years ago that Wayne Shorter, the saxophonist and composer, said something like, the labels are going off the bottles. And unhappily, that never really happened, partly because of, of, of marketing, which seeks to divide us all. And well, you're part of the classical mu music audience. Oh, no, no, no. You're the jazz audience. Or you're not supposed to listen to this. Right. But where... Hazel really was, a, and what has happened over the last 50 years, I think, is we've now got players and to a certain extent composers who are who are virtuosic in more than one area. You've got people who can play classical and jazz, and it's not just the Wynton Marsalises and the Paquito de Riveros. I mean, it's just there's dozens and dozens of musicians, yeah. and some of whom we're going to be featuring in our, our show on November 11th, the night at cafe society who can do all that. Well, Hazel, as Karen pointed out, she was there, you know, in 1939 doing it. And, and in that way, she was really ahead of her time. Yeah. And we're going to talk about Hazel specifically, but Karen, I just want to ask you generally, does, uh, and what ways do your various trainings and uh, expertises feed each other? I mean, do, do your piano skills inform your writing, which informs your acting? Is that how it works in your world? I think so. I, and I'll tell you a story. This is one of my favorite stories. It's a Karen story. Um, <laughs> I'm known for it. No, <laughs> When I was an undergrad um, at Bradley University, I was, believe it or not, I was an economics major. Don't ask. But that's... <laughs> Uh, because, you know, I was that's what brought you the big bucks, huh, Karen? <laughs> I, was, I was doing the, You know, I was doing what I was told. I was you know, it was you got to get a job when you get out. So mm -hmm. I'm in the college of business, but I was losing my mind because I had studied piano since I was five years old and, you know, classical piano and everything I loved was the arts. You know, my grandmother would take she gave me my lessons and we would go to the ballet and we would go to the opera. We would go to the museum. 
So all of that was so much a part of who I was. Then I go to undergrad and major in economics. Made absolutely no sense. So to feed my soul and not lose my mind in college, I would take ballet classes. I would take piano class, um, music appreciation, anything that had some sort of creative you know, slant to it. I'm like, I cannot sit in macroeconomic statistics and business management all day and not just lose my mind. <laughs> so I was one of the things that I, one of the classes I took regularly was poetry. Hmm. There was this guy. I mean, he, he was a character himself, the professor. He was this massive, massively obese man, but he knew everything about poetry. And, you know, the kids would joke about him, but I was always really attuned to just hanging on on his every word because he knew so much about literature and poetry. So his the class was taught where every time you came into class, there was a tray and you had to put a poem down in the tray and you didn't ever put your name on it. But every time you came to class, you had to have written a poem any kind of long form, short form, whatever, but you had to put something in that tray. So I go in this day and then what he would do is he would select one and he would write the whole thing on the board. So every week, you know, the kids would cringe like, oh my God, I hope it's not mine today. So on this day, it was mine. And I'm sitting there, I'm sinking down in my seat and I'm watching him like carefully write out every line. And then he turns around to the class and he says, who is the musician? Oh my gosh. And, I wow. was, and so I'm going, what is he talking about? He says, who is the musician? And I'm just, you know, I'm, you know, what, 18, 19 years old. And I'm just sitting there like, I'm not raising my hand. I don't know what he's talking about. He <laughs> said, Whoever wrote this poem is a musician. Who is That's it? That's deep. That is that deep. wild. And so then I slowly raised my hand and I said, well, it's mine. He said, you're a musician. Do you study music? I said, yes. He said, this is so musical. This is so lyrical. This is, and then he starts going on and on and on. And so then my grandmother, who was upset that I had stopped playing piano, I'm running back from the class to my dorm room to call her in tears. And he said to me, the music is in the writing. The music wow. is in the writing. And who knew that that man was, you know, like laying down prophecy over my life at the time. Mm -hmm. And I run to tell my grandmother and I said, he said, the music is in the writing. And she said, OK, all right. That all sounds good. And so I think that. I forgot your question, but I know that the story. <laughs> no, does the, 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 the very music inform the writing? Informing, yeah. I think it all does. I just do. I think that, you know, even as an actor, if you're given Shakespeare and you have that musicality, you know, and you're doing Lady Macbeth that rhythm and the cadence and the, you know, the love of language and, and the lyricism of language, all of that plays a part, whether you're conscious of it or not. I just think it's, you know, it's sort of just part of the apparatus. It's part of the thing that, that makes you, you, that makes me the artist um, that I'm striving to be. Yep. Yeah. And, and Hazel Scott most certainly embodied that spirit as, as well. Unfortunately, though, Murray, the reality is hers is a name that many people still do not know. We can talk about cancel culture in this 21st century, but 
from my perspective, the blacklisting that uh, she endured is one of the reasons why her name is still not as well known as it should be. Do you do you have that sense or one? Oh, that's similar? yeah, abs- no, absolutely. I mean, Karen's really the authority on this because Karen wrote the book literally on Hazel Scott. But uh, I tell people when, especially young artists, especially young African American artists, say, "Why haven't I heard of her before?" Well, it's not a coincidence. Um, she was suppressed. Um, she was deliberately put down and exiled in a way. I mean, she, she expatriated, but she sort of had to, to make a mm-hmm. living. Um, and it, it was, as you say, the, the so-called blacklist. I, I try to use boycott, which is probably <laughs> bigoted in a different way. <laughs> sure. It's an Irish word, but, um, she, um, it wasn't just chance that, you know, she was overlooked, you know, and covered with the dust of history. Um, I, I have to share with you guys, she, she's, sometimes you hear this bandied about this kind of like troika now of they say, oh, you know, great African-American um, sort of activist um, women artists like uh, Josephine Baker Billie Holiday and Nina Simone. Those are three extremely different artists. Oh yeah. And, but somehow in that constellation should be Hazel Scott, who was in her way, much more of an activist than any of them. Um, certainly a bigger star at her, in her day than any of them. And, uh, I would argue more accomplished artistically in a lot of ways. I mean, this is a woman who, soloed with the New York Philharmonic and the Philadelphia Orchestra and who recorded with Max Roach and Charles Mingus. Um, and, and, and so she really needs to be up there and we need to undo the fact that, as you say, she was canceled. Yep. Karen, the, the more I'll oh, go ahead, go ahead. And I was just going to piggyback on that and say that the, the question that people always ask is, you know, what happened? Like, how did she get written out of history? And I think that, you know, it's a it was a combination of things. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the the HUAC tr- um, hearing certainly didn't help. Right. The fact that, you know, she had just premiered. She was the first black person to have her own TV show, the Hazel Scott show in July 1950. And then by her hearing in September of that same year, it was canceled. So there were so many things that conspired against her. The HUAC hear- hearing being the biggest one, but also the expatriation, you know, which was you know, a byproduct of the hearing that didn't help because now she was completely out of the scene. Mm -hmm. So while jazz artists were doing their thing in New York and LA and, you know, all over the States, she was away in Paris playing little small clubs where, you know, when she used to headline, you know, major um, concert halls. Yeah. Oh, you know, her moving didn't help. She also at that time did not have um, the same kind of representation. So, you know, artists need a great agent. I mean, that yeah. that that can change everything in anybody's career, talent or no talent. You know, you have the right agent. You're going to get into some doors. She didn't have the agent management. She didn't have a record label. So even if she was creating music, there was no vehicle to distribute it. So, there, you know, she wasn't being played on the radio. So all of those things conspired against her. And she was over there over 10 years. And so that, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. There's an extra dimension to it that you may want to pile on to, Karen, because you you know more about it than I do. But in a sense, you you hinted at it when you say when she expatriated, that did not help her career in the United States. And that's for sure. 
Um, because he asked people in France, you know, hey, oh, is it Scott? Oh man, we, you know, I mean, they know mm-hmm. who that is, and even even today. But the the added dimension is, in a way, she did all the harm to herself. Yeah. She was not subpoenaed by the House Committee on Un American Activities. She insisted on testifying. She volunteered, and as her son Adam Clayton Powell the third the son of the congressman, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., and Hazel's husband at the time, says, always reports, her dad said, his dad said to her, you don't know these people. Don't do this. They, you, they are, they're not going to stop their, and it, it ended up being an almost fatal blow to her career. And, and it always occurred to me that she must have, there must have been a component of regret that wasn't there with other boycotted artists. It's interesting because the reason, the only reason I was already familiar with the uh, House Committee on Un-American Activities is because I know the story of Paul Robeson. So, you know, seeing that, you know, sort of relationship was interesting to me. But, you know, what it what it brings to mind for me, Karen, you know, and and to, you know, pull on the thread that uh, that Murray showcased there, it seemed like she must have felt that this was necessary action. It's one thing to contextualize an activist, an artist activist as someone who was just dealing with what she was dealing with. But it seemed like there was a lot of intentionality behind the story as we understand it now. Yeah. And I think there's a quote from her where she says um, I could not sit by and allow these people to scandalize my name I've worked too hard I won't allow it they cannot sully my name I can't be quiet when have I ever been quiet mm-hmm. you know it was part of her makeup I think one of the um, one of the opening quotes in the book is she says I've been brazen all my life but it's given my life meaning. Mm -hmm. I think it was just how she was wired. She couldn't, I don't think she could have lived with herself if she hadn't gone before the committee. So it was, you know, and I think, you know, she was an extremely brilliant woman. So I'm sure she was fully aware of what the consequences were. However, knowing the consequences and living the consequences, Mm -hmm. you know, it's often two different things. But in her later uh, interviews, when she's asked, you know, what is her biggest, um, you know, it wasn't the word regret. I think one of her last interviews was in Ms. Magazine. And she just, you know, when looking back at her career, she says, the idea that my career was stopped mm-hmm. has nearly killed me. Mm. And she always viewed, even up until the end, she always pointed the finger at HUAC for stopping her career. Yeah. You know, another one of the quotes uh, from Hazel Scott that I appreciated, uh, she, she won, I believe it was Time Magazine when she said, why would anyone come to hear me, a Negro, and refuse to sit beside someone just like me? Of course, mm. this is in uh, response to uh, her aversion to playing uh, segregated uh, audiences, pr- playing in front of segregated audiences. Murray, when I hear that quote and when I think about that quote, I just think about how much it uh, relates to today. As well, you know, if if I may just frankly say, you know, I'm always told that jazz at Lincoln Center is not a predominantly black space, you know, despite the fact that this is jazz music. At the end of the day, you know, even today and certainly back in Hazel Scott's time, was the music ever enough to bridge those cultural gaps? It seems like there always needed to be something more than just the music for the actual integration and the community building to take place. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yes, what there is an important element 
that is necessary. There's something missing. What was missing is the will to do something about it, to be Wagnerian about it. It really takes, or probably Schopenhauerian about it. It takes <laughs> the intention, the will, the determination to, to just not to go along with the prevalent uh, uh, discriminatory and officially discriminatory mores and attitudes and laws of the time. Um, there were, and, and, and it's a tragedy. I mean, I, I think, you know, Wynton Marsala said one time, the tragedy of Bix Beiderbecke, the white early, you know, traditional jazz player was the tragedy of race because he didn't get to collaborate with Louis Armstrong. He didn't get to collaborate with, um, Earl Hines and some of the great musicians yeah. at the time, because you just couldn't do that. You could in a jam session. Um, but fortunately there were, um, the, the, the big item in Hazel's life and in, in American life in a way is a place called cafe society and cafe society was a nightclub that opened originally in Greenwich village in Manhattan in 1939, Karen or 38. Yeah, it opened in 39. She debuted in uh, 38 and she, she debuted in 39. 39. Right. Mm -hmm. And within months, um, they had opened up and it, it was funny that the, the title cafe society was ironic because it was meant in a way to satirize the very hoity toity upper East side and East side club, midtown clubs, um, that were prevalent at the time. And the irony is that within months they had opened up a cafe society uptown too. Hmm. Uh, and it was the first integrated nightclub in the city of New York and probably as near, near as anybody can make out in the United States of America. And the integration was both on stage where blacks and whites played together, appeared together and in the audience where blacks and whites were seated together. So Hazel as the darling of cafe society, uh, I, I'm fond of saying it, you know, she helped make Cafe Society a success and Cafe Society helped make her a star. Um, yeah. There were people, I mean, Benny Goodman's a good example. Benny Goodman, who didn't, and, and, and Artie Shaw as well, they could integrate their bands a little bit, their big bands, but when it came to the small groups, Benny Goodman integrated his small groups. He had the famous quartet with him, Gene Krupa, Lionel Hampton, and Teddy Wilson. And when they would appear in a Hollywood film, it was always in a way that those that, that their scene could be cut out of the film because mm. they felt they could not show the, sh the, the film in the South, couldn't show blacks and whites playing music together. Right. So when, when you have the intention, when you have the will, yes, the music was more than enough to bring people together. Yes. Without that element, though, you know, there's only so much the music could do. Because Karen, what I'm what I'm thinking about is we can you know talk all day about changing <clears throat> individual hearts and mm -hmm. and you know being anti-racist in that way, but you know we've already mentioned uh, HUAC. It's I, in my opinion just very significant that the structure that is the United States was one that she was fighting against. It wasn't just individual racists; it was right. a syst a system that was upholding that that culture. Exactly. And I mean, you know, it's like that old um, saying, you can't beat City Hall. You know, it, it mm -hmm. she was up against, you know, struct institutionalized structural racism and a committee that was designed, you know, to hunt people down and to to, um, you know, to to blacklist them in a way that stopped careers because 
there were suicides and career, you know, during um, those HUAC um, trials, there were people whose absolute lives were, was it, was it um, Canada Lee Murray, the actor, the black actor? I, th- I want to say Canada Lee was he, another. I think he was. was um, one of the actors that was. But certainly uh, Philip, what was his name? The guy who was the co-star of the Molly Goldberg show uh, with Gertrude Berg on the radio and on television jumped out of a window of uh, a a hotel on Park Avenue. I think The stakes were so high, you know, so the idea that, you know, her speaking out, you know, it's funny because she risked everything, but she knew it, but you know, the, there was sort of a higher calling. It was because she says in her 50 page, she wrote a 50 page, um, testament to HUAC and said, I want to enter this into the record. Can I read some of it? And they let her read a little bit of it. And they said, well, the only reason we're doing this is because you're the the wife of one of our colleagues. But in that 50 page statement, she says in there, I'm not just doing this because of me. I'm doing What about all the artists? She said, what about those that don't have a husband who's a congressman? Mm-hmm. What about the artists who you're, you're maligning and ruining and you know, you're ending people's careers when we've worked all of our lives. And she said, artists are the ones who are holding the bloodstained banner of what is great about America. And we're doing this all over the world. Every time we show up as American artists on a stage, we are representing the greatness of America. So why would you choose us to target? You know, and I, I think she knew that it was it was a huge thing to go up against. And it was bigger than her. But she was self-sacrificing in that way. Her son, Adam, says uh, that she, and this was true throughout her career, even when his dad, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., counseled her not to do this, not to testify before uh, HUAC, she said, but I'm right. And when she knew, you know, there's that old, apparently Davy Crockett had engraved on his gun barrel, his rifle barrel, be sure you're right, then go ahead. Um, (laughs) It worked out better for Davy Crockett than it did for Hazel, but that was kind of her motto too. She's, but I'm right. I'm right about this. And as Karen says, she believed deeply in America. And there's a great piece of audio that she did for a station in Philadelphia in 1950, WFIL, about what America means to me. And it's, I mean, you want to stand up and salute the flag when she gets finished. Yeah. I, I do want to say that there, there's, there was a kind of, I don't want to say double-edged sword, but there was, there was an upside to the official racism, as you, you said, the legal institutionalized racism, uh, the, the time of the time now it's institutionalized, but it's not official. You know what I'm saying? It's not written right. into law the way it was back then. And, and the upside was that in general, African-Americans and African-American artists in particular were, were ignored. They was like, oh, it's those people. We don't have to worry about them. As a result, some very, very left-wing intellectuals and artists who were people of color were just, I mean, the, the, the boycott of the 1950s left them, <laughs> left them behind. Dizzy Gillespie said, um, actually, Paul Robeson Jr. said <clears throat> that the, the big exception to his being shunned by American show business and American artists, uh, uh, arts establishment, um, was were the jazz musicians. He said he would go to a concert of Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker 
at the Apollo and they would say, and ladies and gentlemen, our good friend, Paul Robeson, and they would introduce <laughs> him. He'd stand to a big hand. Nobody ever touched Dizzy. Dizzy was, Dizzy joined the communist party one time at mostly he said to meet girls and, and <laughs> they left Dizzy alone. They left Dizzy alone. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it sort of harkens back to discussions that people have about um, segregation in America and yeah. where, you know, not that there's anything great about segregation, you know, in theory, but when, when you look at historically, there's this, you know, there are these conversations, I'll say, or debates about how well Black folks were doing in some city right. because of it. Like, I remember growing up in Chicago on the South Side, which it was, Chicago, I think, is still segregated because it was not only segregated among Black folks. It wasn't just Black and white. It was segregated. Italians lived here. The mm -hmm. Irish lived here. The Polish lived here. The Germans were here. Mexicans over here. Puerto Ricans over here. So, I mean, everybody had their turf. But because of that, I grew up in a in an area where all I saw was black business owners. The entire block was owned by a black person. Mm -hmm. Every funeral director, every church, every bar, every store, every restaurant, because we were in this little cocoon. So in that sense, you grew up knowing all these things are possible because everything around me says so. Yeah. Not knowing that there's this insidious thing that's happening that's the reason for it, because we can't cross 63rd Street or we might get shot or, yeah, or right. beat right. up, you know. It, remind, a, it, it reminds me of this historical phenomenon that, you know, also applied to Hazel Scott of black folks going elsewhere, you know, going to France, as as so many others did. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, Karen, it, 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 I, the, the only reason I kind of shake my head at that idea is because I worry about the impact of continuing to contextualize another country as our yeah. savior, as, as opposed to exactly. doing what we can to, to fix it. I, I, I wonder if you have thoughts on, on that idea. Well, what you've just hit upon is the reason I wrote the book. This is how it started. This is, this was the seed of the idea. When I first started this project, it wasn't about Hazel Scott at all. I wanted to write a book. I told my literary agent, I really want to write a book about Black women artist expatriates and not just the folks that we know went to Paris. I want to speak to women who went anywhere. Mm -hmm. And then I, I had this whole, this really grandiose idea that I'm going to do it in two parts. You know, I'm actually thinking I'm going to publish it to publish this, but you know, a girl can dream. So I said, <laughs> no, I'm going to do two, I'm going to do two books. One will be, you know, looking back, like retrospective. So to be women from the 19th century and early 20th century, sculptors, painters, opera singers. So I had this whole list of women, you know, that I had done all of this research and found out that they had gone to all of these places all over the world. And then I said, and then we'll do like the 20th century version and it'd be all the musicians and singers and performers. And so I had all these women and because I was interested in the expatriate journey, I said to myself, this can't be great. This can't be fun because you're leaving everything that's familiar. You're leaving everything behind to go start over just so you can do your art. What is that story? Mm -hmm. So that's where I started. I started researching all of these women, women who had gone to Norway and, you know, people like Elizabeth Catlett, who went to Mexico and 
and um, Grace Bumbry, the opera singer, mm-hmm. Barbara mm-hmm. Hendricks, and Barbara Chase Rabu, the the uh, sculptor, all these fabulous women. And I said, oh, this would be so interesting. I just want to talk to them. And um, and even Dee Dee Bridgewater at that time, I yep. think, in London. Yeah, yep. and, so, and Paris, too. And, and Nina Simone was on yep. my list. That, that's a whole nother story. Matt, you should t- t- one of these days talk to our colleague at Washington Performing Arts, um, Doug Wheeler, because he knew Mattawilda Dobbs pretty well. Oh and my God. That's she a story. That's a story. Yeah. Mattawilda Dobbs was on my list. And also, when I wor- I'm sorry to <laughs> interrupt, but when I worked at NPR, I think Elizabeth Blair did a long piece about Mattawilda Dobbs, and you could talk oh, to her wow. about it. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was the seed idea. And so then I stumbled upon this book called Notes and Tones by Art Taylor. Art Taylor, yes, I know the, that book. The Jazz Drummer, little bitty book, Q&A style. And it was, I think the subtitle was Musicians Talking to Musicians. Mm-hmm. And he was in the book, he goes to all the musicians who were living overseas to talk about their experiences. I stumble upon Hazel Scott's answers to his questions and that's what pulled me in she was the one who said you know paris is no day at the beach you know this it's not as if racism doesn't um doesn't exist in paris ask any algerian and they'll tell you what racism feels like in paris Mm -hmm. she was so forthright and so honest and i said oh my god who is this Mm -hmm. i've never heard of her surely there's a book on her (laughs) (laughs) so then i go looking for the book i find nothing but i was so intrigued by her answers to what it meant to be an expatriate that that's what sent me down the road to writing her book i put the other big grand idea away because my agent told me it would never happen and Uh it it doesn't mean it can't but it didn't at the time and i said i'm so intrigued by this woman and then the more I found out about her, I mean, it was like just pulling a string and it just kept growing, growing, growing. And I said, OK, this is the book. It's not what I thought, but it's her. Yeah. Do you know do you, there's a famous well, maybe it's not famous enough. There's this quotation from Toni Morrison who said, if there's a book you want to read and it doesn't exist, you have to write that book. So that's mm-hmm. exactly what you did. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> You know, Murray, it's it's easy for me to get excited about, you know, content and, and performance art around the story of Hazel Scott. But I wonder uh, what your uh, perspective has been on people who don't know the story or don't know her story very well engaging, you know, the art surrounding her. Have, have you have you seen uh, the, the, the art pulling people into this story and people getting excited about it? Yeah, um, um, I'm going to do it again. With You'll be 73 one day and you'll understand. Uh, <laughs> big, big, who was the, the, the great at the Grammy Award? She played two pianos and said, this is for him. Oh, Alicia Keys. Yeah. Alicia Keys, you know, so thank you. It's only one of the biggest stars in the world. So, um, yeah, I mean, that clearly um, she's already influenced somebody who in turn is reaching millions of people, mostly younger people. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the. Part of the answer to your question is, of course, the art itself has the ability to to reach and to inspire and to touch and to amuse um, younger audiences. I mean, when you see some of Hazel's footage from feature Hollywood films before she was boycotted, and it's important to remember, excuse me, she was boycotted by the Hollywood studios before she was well before HUAC because she had taken a stand uh, against the way. Uh, African-American women were being portrayed on the screen. Um, and and uh, 
but if you see some of those um some of those film clips they are instantly attractive they're irresistible she is gorgeous she's winsome she's virtuosic and you go wow look i mean it's just you play those clips for people and they're just they're, their jaws drop so she can still reach people that's for sure um the question is access and again what has replaced in my view um some of the official racial segregation in america is the unofficial um commercial segregation of us and it's not only by race it's done by marketers who mm -hmm. have shaved us into ever narrower shards of demographics mm -hmm. so that, oh well you can't see this picture because that's not marketed to you that's for these people you're those right. people oh so this is for you and it's like man everybody is capable of like liking everything i always tell people i wonder i just marvel and and start to laugh at what um the response of fats waller or ernest hemingway or Arthur Miller or Duke Ellington would have been if a marketer had said, well, where's your target audience? Right. <laughs> target audience is the people. That's who my yeah. target audience that's, is. That's right. That's it. But it, it makes me, Murray, what you said makes me think of, it, it, it sort of reminds me of one of your initial questions about silos. I remember when I was doing research on the book and I was trying to get interviews and, you know, it, it was years and years in the making. It took me seven years to get the book done. and um, I just remember there were some musicians that I talked to who were sort of, you know, snobby about this idea that she was jazzing the classics. Mm -hmm. It was like, you know, oh, that's just, you know, that's sort of a, a, a you know, just a, what's the word? A, a gimmick a, or a, a gimmick. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, that, you know, some, yeah, that that's not serious. Like it wasn't serious. You know, like she's not a serious jazz player because she's swinging the classes and she's not really a serious classical pianist because she's taking the stuff and bastardizing it. And so I just thought, oh, my God, this is, you know, but but that attitude definitely was there. And it was interesting because I later did an, an interview with a woman who had done a documentary on Mary Lou Williams mm -hmm. and we were sharing our journeys as writers. Like, you know, what was your journey like? And she was saying how everybody was sort of bowing down to Mary Lou Williams. And I said, oh, no, I didn't have that. Mm -hmm. I said, people were looking at me like, you know, treating, not giving Hazel Scott her credit, her musicianship, the credit that it deserved. Writing her off as mm -hmm. sort of a popular artist or a pop act or, you know, this gimmicky thing that she did to to woo audiences and then even attacking like her, you know, she wore um, strapless gowns and how, you know, I think it was Dorothy Donegan, the pianist that said, you know, if you go to a concert of Hazel Scott, she looks naked up there on the stage. <laughs> so said, I wore strapless gowns because I wanted the arm freedom. Yeah. So all of these little biases exist, you know, with with purists, you know, people just thought, oh, that was just sort of a, a you know, a trend. But it was she wasn't as serious as this one or that one. But when I talk to my friends now who are musicians like Damien Sneed, who's going to be oh, part yeah. of the show. And Damien is is my collaborative partner. We wrote an opera together last year. We're working on a new one. And I asked him when I said, talk to me about her musicianship. He went into such detail that I was like, wow, I wish I had known you when I was writing this book. Because <laughs> he said, Karen, I said, well, do you know anybody that can actually do this? He said, no, I don't. Mm, he said, I really that? don't. 
He said, her facility is so amazing. He said, her ear. He said, do you know what it takes to take a classical work and deconstruct it and turn it into this? Mm -hmm. This is so, he said, it's so major. It takes such brilliance. He said he was blown away when he first heard that. He said, this is no small thing. He said, so anybody writing that off doesn't know music. Yeah. And there's a little bit of sexism and racism, maybe not a little bit, involved in that because, mm-hmm. first of all, they, believe me, when oh, there are a lot when Stan Kenton brought out a whole album of classics played by his big band, well during Hazel's lifetime, it was probably in the fifties, fifties. Believe me, nobody said, "Oh, well, this is just a gimmick." They were like, "Wow, isn't this mm-hmm. interesting?" This you know, major uh, band leader is doing classics. Well, I, you know, I mean, it was like, and none of it swung, you know, so, but, but, and similarly, if it's the idea that, well, if you're that gorgeous and you're wearing those gowns and those diamond drop earrings, uh, you can't be a serious artist, you know? Right. Um, and, and, and there's still people who, who, who suffer with that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. As as we think about, you know, Hazel Scott's legacy and look into the future, where I wanted to uh, tie a bow on this conversation was with the question of arts activism today. I meet so many artists, specifically uh, Black women artists, who, uh, you know, will tell me, I am under no obligation to take on activism. I just want to, to do my art. So I, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Is there still a charge for artists today to continue to push the needle and, and get us going, moving toward a more equal, a more equitable society. I wonder what your opinions are or ideas are um, on the people who don't necessarily see themselves as needing to engage those conversations as an artist. You know, I can't, I can't tell another artist what to do, but I see the two as inextricably linked. I remember reading something years ago when I was a young writer just starting out and Langston Hughes wrote it and I'm paraphrasing, but it said something like black writers have an obligation to write about certain things. And I never forgot that. So every time I sit down, I'm aware of pushing the needle forward of speaking about certain things. You know, I mean, even when I write plays, you know, I think of them as idea plays. So I I have plays about the middle class. I have a play about colorism, I have a play about, you know, I mean, I, I think of what are the larger subjects? Because it can't just be about me. Right. You know, I think that that's that's where that starts to go, where it's just I just want to be on stage and I just want to be fabulous and show everybody what my gifts are. It's like, well, what is your message? What are you saying? And and who are you inspiring with this? And I just think that, you know, I think it's one of the greatest gifts in the world to be born an artist and to have the opportunity to do all of this. I just don't think that I could, I don't think I could do, I couldn't do it. I have to speak out on behalf of my community, my people, Black women. It's just part of the makeup. I can't see doing it any other way. I mean, one of my greatest artistic experiences last year was to write an opera about one of my literary heroes, James Baldwin. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yes, we have to do this and we have to do this a certain way. If we can't do it like this, then we don't need to mess with it because this is James Baldwin. So, yeah, I I just I, I don't know that we have the luxury. I really don't. I just don't know that we have the luxury to turn away and say, I'm not of that generation. So I'm older than the millennials. I, I don't, <laughs> don't have that in me to say, oh, I don't owe something 
you know, I don't owe a debt to those who came before me. I don't know that it's a luxury, frankly. I mean, I'll say several things. Since you've talked about your own work, I will, with no false humility, talk about my own as well. But first of all, Paul Robeson said something like, or he used to say this in many different ways, but that, that it's, so I'm paraphrasing, that it's not enough to be an artist. You have to be a citizen as well. Mm. And, you know, if, and wherever you're from, right? If if you're, you know, an Italian American, if you're a Muslim American artist, you're an African American artist, you're a Jewish American, you've got to reach into your tradition because, you know, you are the, you know, flowering or the, maybe the, uh, I don't know, awful of, of a whole tradition. And, and you, you ignore that at your peril. What I was going to say was, I'm not sure it's a luxury because it also makes for excellence. I'm proudly a co-author of the musical Ain't Misbehavin'. And there would have been a way of presenting the work of Fats Waller, an African-American virtuoso musician, virtuoso comedian who worked at a time of great institutional and official prejudice and who was, by the way, a kind of a unofficial uncle to Hazel Scott. Mm-hmm. Um, and there would have been a way of doing Fats's art and just ig- kind of ig- ignoring race and ignoring his very strong subtext of anti-racism and letting us know with every note, with every wink, that we're all in this together. And yeah. I would like to think that if we'd done it that way, it would have been a flop. And it should have yeah. been a flop. You know, yeah. you can't do Fats Waller without doing what did I do to be so black and blue? You know, you, you can't. Right. And, and looking good but feeling bad and, and all the other dozens of songs that are in that show that always have that subtext in it. In my own case, um, I, I, I started really doing a, 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 an evening of a one man show that I still perform of uh, the stories of Shalom Aleichem, the Yiddish short story writer on whose stories Fiddler on the Roof was based. Mm. And part of the impetus for the show was you think, you know, Shalom Aleichem, you think Shalom Aleichem is um, Fiddler on the Roof. There is so much more to him, and there is so much more humanity, so much more intellectual depth and an emotional depth, emotional depth to his humor that you need to know about this. And I think that's what motivates um, any artist is like we, there's something we need to share. As yeah. far as your question about contemporary artists are going, it goes, no, there's always going to be a lot of artists, maybe a majority of them, who are going to say, oh, no, I'm just an artist. I just do my art. I, I can't really dis- discuss social issues or politics. Well, you know, I just read an article today about the response, the disappointing response among contemporary artists, particularly popular artists, to the anti-Semitism of the artist formerly known as Kanye West, right? Right, and right. It was, the, the response was slow in coming. It was feeble and it was very dispersed. And there wasn't, you, you, one would have thought that there'd be a huge outcry and that outcry didn't come. So it's still very much an issue. It'll probably always be an issue as long as there are people in institutions.
tail end there of Black and White Are Beautiful, uh, the very legendary uh, performance by Hazel Scott on two grand pianos. Scott, we have composers out here like John Cage that will write four minutes and 33 seconds of nothing. Hazel Scott out here playing two pianos and we barely remember her name. <laughs> Damn. Good point. What do we have to do? So, <laughs> I don't know, play three. So, I'm, <laughs> so, I'm, I'm so again, so grateful uh, to have been able to dialogue with Maury Horwitz and Karen Chilton. Uh, I'll have uh, links to all of their work here, and um, and I hope that you will spend this Women's History Month learning a little bit about them. All right, well, we're going to jump into the triloquy. We got to talk a little bit about money and about capitalism this week. So I wanted to transition into this final movement with uh, some American classical that samples some East Asian, maybe Chinese classical in a way that I love. I've been listening to this song for a lot. This is the uh, instrumental for a tune by Key Glock called Ambition for Cash to get us into the final movement. Don't you think it would be so fun for your job just to be to listen to just all types of music, just from everywhere, all types of stuff, and identify what could be a a fire beat? I mean that yeah. that that is a that is a gig. But wow, thanks to capitalism, it has to be a job where you do like six other things in addition to that. Well, you know the rappers they have figured out how to have cash, how to have folks on staff. You know these rappers have full-time blunt rollers mm. but we, we got drake out here talking about uh ask the chef to make me another wine you know that <laughs> they they have figured it out but unfortunately for orchestras for other sorts of so-called classical institutions this uh chasing of the money just isn't so smooth and it's starting to really great my spirit a little bit before we connected directly to the arts. One of the things that uh, reminded me that I wanted to have a bit of this conversation this week was uh, that Caesar put me on to a, a new book by Bernie Sanders called It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. So I don't need that permission or that affirmation, mm-hmm. but I think that might be a generational thing. How important is the statement from your perspective, it's okay yeah. to be angry about capitalism. Yeah, we we've talked about this before. How I I think that it is your generation and and younger that has a chance <laughs> at at changing it because folks my parents' age, no, that's that's ingrained. Mm-hmm. And I grew up with it being ingrained, but questioning it, and it's the next generation on down that are going to question it and worked for change. Yeah. I, I talk with dad about it all the time. What, what do you expect these young people to keep doing? To keep uh, getting loans and walk into the meat grinder that is college right. and come out the other end with the headache of loans and <laughs> and and uh, uh, payments that you can barely afford for 20 years or however long it is. Two more like 50 years. And expect them not to change it. Mm-hmm. So when we think about the the way in which capitalist structures require a few people with a lot of money mm. but way more people most people with far less money you know the the sort of tiered dynamics that it requires i think 
we don't often think about and bring to the front the fact that orchestras and other arts institutions, a part of their viability is going after those few at the top or higher up the totem pole than we are for them to offer donations, for them to fund things for the the artists. And, you mean the big uh, checks. Right. And, and, and other folks who are lower down. Even, you know, for the people, you'll go to a concert program and you'll see a list of people who gave, you know, between 500 and a thousand dollars. That's money that a lot of people don't have. And, and thank goodness for those people. But, you know, I, I do think, you know, the the extremity of it is that you do have individuals who, you know, their 15, 20, 30, a hundred thousand dollar check is really what makes orchestral music, what makes classical music possible. I think about that because my ideals and my own aspirations about a post-capitalist society, some sort of world where we don't have a system that requires poor people, that requires, you know, as I said, tiered dynamics of of um, access to to resources. If we start to talk about redistribution really critiquing capitalist structures, can arts institutions survive it? Can opera houses, uh, uh, orchestras survive a redistribution of wealth that would take away those high, high dollar rich people and their ability to, to give all of this money? If the resources are more equitably spread about, I'm not sure that orchestras can survive it. And, you know, that thought matched with the requirements of of the field to sort of, you know, create relationships and identify these people. It just makes, you know, my job, my work feel itchy sometimes. So you're saying that that ship has sailed and the work that is being done at this point is probably not going to be enough to prop it up if large donations go away? I don't think we have buy-in from enough of the communities for it to survive if those individuals are not there. If we already right. had, you know, let's let's say the city of um, El Paso. If we had 90% of the population in El Paso engaged by the local orchestra, and I don't know what's going on down there. I just threw that city out just to throw it out. Mm-hmm. But if, if we had 90% of the population engaged by the local orchestra in some way, whether it was as a donor, as a, a sometimes visitor, as someone who um, has uh, engaged educational uh, initiatives, you know, you're a student and musicians came to the school. Mm. If you have that sort of ubiquitousness across the culture, I think that will be one thing because you have a lot of people collectively supporting a thing. But that's just not the way orchestras operate, at least not most orchestras. And as I continue to critique the idea of capitalism and try to brainstorm about post capitalist ways of going about, I don't quite see it for the orchestras yet. <laughs> I don't I haven't figured out in my mind how that can be viable and how that can be sustained. And as we, you know, have Bernie Sanders' book coming out and continue to just identify the growing wealth disparity. I I don't know. I can't remember if I talked about it last week or not, but just visiting San Francisco is way more in your face with all the time that I've spent in New York. Of course, I'm I'm seeing uh, just textbook examples of just wealth disparity and and it gets even you know further than than that it gets even more spread than that i i don't i don't see it for the orchestras maybe a part of of my job is to make make a way for it and i'm not saying there is no way for it 
I just don't see it right now. So it sounds like uh, they don't have a shot to do it because the big checks, once the people who write those checks die, mm-hmm. and let's say that, you know, because we know that's probably old money, right? Let's make that assumption. Yeah. So once they die and they're not writing the checks, are those who are benefiting from that wealth in the family still going to honor that tradition? That's a gamble. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we know that from the articles that we've been reading, that there is a constant sort of beating of the drum of new music sucks and we need to keep playing mm-hmm. all the old stuff. So I can surmise from that, it does not sound like they have a chance. Well, and you also have to think about the fact that in many cases, it's high dollar funders that determine repertoire or at least determine That's another fold. you know? And I feel like one of the other evils of capitalism is that one way or another, it forces us to justify ideals that we wouldn't defend otherwise. I think one of the primary examples is the way that individuals, musicians, and even institutions continue to defend the Eurocentric aesthetic as the centerpiece for American arts institutions. More and more, I'm um, uh, taking a look, uh, either streaming or going to in-person, new music concerts or just renewed way of thinking these. Uh, UCLA uh, have their Music and Justice series these past few weeks. I was a a speaker for that and and tuned into their concert uh, yesterday. So much new music, so much music that um, uh, incorporated gospel aesthetics and jazz aesthetics. And mm. there was some uh, choral music that was straight down the middle. And, it, you know, that, that, that has its place too, but that is not the norm still. Mm-hmm. The norm is still to center a European sort of aesthetic. And I think if you really dig down deep enough, there's easy, easily identifiable connections between that and capitalism, whether you defend it because your paycheck depends on it or whether you perpetuate it and have your way because you're giving the organization X amount of dollars. I'm mm-hmm. not I'm not subtweeting here. I, I want to I want to repeat that. But the more I do my work in the in the arts administration field, the more that I'm just spending time thinking about how can I make sense of that? How can that be shifted and, you know, making sure that I'm not falling victim of defending certain things for the sake of my own paycheck and, and and my own requirement to participate in capitalism. I would say that I think that public broadcasting has a better shot at surviving the loss of a of a big dollar mm-hmm. uh, check writer simply because of the focus that they'll do. Uh, radio stations and television stations alike will focus on the twenty dollar a month, the ten dollar a month, you know, contribution to get that base mm-hmm. and. Uh, something that I think is really encouraging uh, that uh, public radio stations around the country are starting to do is not focus on a dollar amount, but a member amount. Sure. We want to get in this drive, we want to get 1,500 members. I like members. that. You know, so I, I think that you, you, you start to sow the seeds of getting away from the big check. If, if you start looking in, in that direction. And I know that there are a lot of organizations that are really putting time and energy and resources into community-centric fundraising. Mm-hmm. I think that's really phenomenal. I just want all of this to change. <laughs> and I think as yeah. we continue to talk about decolonizing classical music, you know, through the, the programmatic and aesthetic approach, I think we also have to keep in mind and consider the ways in which classical music, orchestral music, 
lives and survives and with you know violent capitalism being one of those means I, i'm grateful to all of the people who you know write those big checks to various orchestras to uh, give musicians and composers opportunities a lot of the commissions come from people who can just write a, a large check you know so not to say that there isn't gratitude there no but but the systems that create those people create far more poor people who will never have access to those spaces mm. anyway so sometimes it's just hard for me not to take that aerial view and to try to consider ways in which critiquing capitalism and ultimately dismantling it can be a part of a decolonizing point. classical music yeah. just as one of the many many ways that's my spiel for this week swish so so now we're gonna uh, go out and, and do something anti-capitalist. What should we? What 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 should we go uh, borrow permanently from a music store? Or... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say you want to you want to. No, I'm, I'm not stealing anything. So. <laughs> you want to uh, pirate a login for a streaming service? Oh, there something? we go. There there we go. But see now the artists that we're streaming they're not getting their due. And uh, see it, it all gets it's so all messy. connected. Anyway, thank you so much, everyone. Always a, a pleasure to spend a little time with y'all. We'll see you next week. 